Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. What was supposed to be a very short encounter with Wesley ended up being a 14-year journey. During that journey, we would talk, we would share letters, and there would be visits. But I kept going back and I kept visiting with Colin and sometimes Colin wouldn't say a word during our visits, but he rarely asked me to go away. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I am Jessica Hankin. And I'm Laura Wexler. This week on the podcast, Witness, stories from two women who pull back the curtain on one of life's most profound and profoundly difficult moments. Before we get started, we do wanna thank our longtime sponsor, The Park School, which is an independent co-educational school located right outside Baltimore City. Okay, so this first story today is shared by Lori James Towns, um, who was born and raised in Baltimore City and has a master's of social work from the University of Maryland. So she works as a forensic social worker. And what I actually had not heard of that job before, Lori, had you ever heard of that, Jessica? No. Okay, so basically what forensic social workers do is they work on a legal team. And in this case, she works on a team with public defenders. And her role is to collect and tell the stories of the client um, in the courtroom and other places as a way of helping present the accused person as like a whole person and not just their crime. So this story um, is about her experience, which began in 1992, which was a year after she graduated from the School of Social Work. And she gets a call asking her to meet with Wesley Eugene Baker, who at the time was a 33-year-old man um, who had been convicted of murder. And her job was to meet with him and gather information to share with the judge during the sentencing phase of his trial. And so this was the phase in which a judge was going to decide whether Wesley Eugene Baker would be sentenced to life in prison or whether he would be sentenced to death. So her story begins on the day she first meets Wesley in a detention center in Harford County, Maryland. It's heavy stuff. Let's take a listen. I came into the room. There Wesley was. His eyes were dark, but thoughtful. Inquisitive, but also very sad and hopeless. We sat down together, and I began to tell him why I was there, to get his story. I can't really remember the details of that conversation, but I know that I was with him for quite a long time. I shared with him the bits that his mother gave me as well before I met with him. And a few days later, I walked into the courtroom to tell the judge what I thought was a story that would save his life. A tumultuous childhood marred by trauma and sadness. He didn't want this story to come out because he really loved his mother and he didn't want her to be embarrassed or shamed. So I told the story anyway. The judge in turn said, after hearing his story, I'm not surprised he turned out to be a monster and he sentenced him to die. What was supposed to be a very short encounter with Wesley ended up being a 14 year journey. 
During that journey, we would talk, we would share letters, and there would be visits, hours and hours upon conversations we've had, dozens and dozens of letters. Our time together wasn't always consistent, but when we did get together, we picked up where we left off. Every time he had a court hearing or something happened, I was deeply involved. I watched his transformation. I watched him go from a man who wasn't sure where he fit into a world to a man to show love, caring. He became, he was a father. He became a grandfather. He became caring and doting actually over his mother. I went from being his social worker to being his friend. And I must admit that over the time we let our guard down. When, more, when Marilyn had a moratorium on the death penalty, I thought that his life was saved for good. But in 2003, the moratorium was lifted and Wesley's name, it rose to the top. And so on this day that comes to my mind so vividly, it was snowing outside. I got a call from Wesley letting me know that where he was and I told him I would be there to see him soon. Wesley was at the penitentiary at the death watch chamber. We had a visit the night before and we exchanged letters on my way out the door. Wesley's letter shared his concern and worrying for me and his mother and also wanted to make sure that I didn't feel any way about the fact that he was in the predicament that he was in. He didn't want me to have any guilt or sadness. My letter in turn apologized for all the things that I didn't even have anything to do with. His childhood, his trauma, the lack of intervention, the lack of pre prevention, the inability to have any sort of reconciliation with the victim's family because I knew that that brings about healing. We shared these letters the night before. That was on my mind on my way to the penitentiary. When I got to the penitentiary, there was a big room and in the room there was a cell and in the cell there sat Wesley. In front of the cell, there was a big bold line with letters in red that said, do not cross. I couldn't shake his hand as I usually do. I could not hug him as sometimes we did on our way out of visits. I just had to sit there with an officer right beside us listening to our every word. So we kept it light for as long as we could. We talked about Desperate Housewives. That was our favorite show. Wesley's favorite character was Bree and mine was Susan. And so sometimes he would say I was having a Susan moment. And sometimes I would say he was having a Bree moment. But we talked about so many things that day, and I tried to keep the conversation light. But Wesley abruptly cut in at some point and said, you know, Lori, today may be the day. I told him, yes, I did. And he said, we have some, you have things that we need to do. Do you know if anybody's made arrangements? And I said, I'm pretty sure no one has. And he said, I need you to take care of that. And by the way, are you gonna be here? Are you gonna be my witness? I get to pick a witness. And I said, the state said no, only your attorneys could be your witness. I told him that my friend who was an attorney, Katie would sit in for me. And that was the closest I could get to being his witness. And he was in agreement with that. But I ended the visit and I left to go take care of the things that needed to be done. I spoke with the attorneys. I went to their office. I called his mom, urging her to make sure that she got down there, trying to do what we were told to do, which is to keep this a secret that today may possibly be the day, but I made sure that she got there. I called the funeral home to make arrangements for his body. And I went back to the penitentiary 
And I was surprised his mom was there. Not surprised that she was there, but happily surprised that I was happy because she was there and other family members were there. And Wesley was talking and they were sharing memories and he was making each of them feel special in the Wesley way. And I sat and I just watched and I observed. The time went by so quickly. I couldn't believe that even time had went by so quickly from the time that Marilyn had a moratorium to we're sitting here on the, the day that Wesley may be executed. But in my mind, I knew that I had to be his witness one way or the other. And so eventually someone came in and said, it's time for you guys to go, I'm sorry. We all sat there like deer caught in the headlights. Eventually someone said their goodbyes, one by one. I was last. I crossed that line. I went up to the bars. He put his arm through for a makeshift goodbye and a makeshift hug. And we said our goodbyes. And he said, please take care of yourself. And I smiled and I said, I will. As we turned to leave, Father Chuck was saying a prayer. We went downstairs on the elevators together. When we got to the lobby, it was very different than when we came up. When we came up, it was empty. Now there were people muddling about, having conversations, laughing and joking. There was food and drinks, and they were ushered into a room where we were told that there was a closed circuit TV where they would watch my friend be killed. We walked outside, it was snowing, but there was another group of people outside, people who didn't know Wesley, but came to be his witness. They came to protest the injustice, but they also came to be a comfort. We locked arms, and eventually we were told that there would be no stay from the governor's office. And at 9.18, as the crowd was singing Amazing Grace, we were told that Wesley was pronounced dead. Pretty quickly, the hearse comes to the penitentiary, and I watch it roll into the gates, and I stand there until it departs with my friend's body. As it rolls up the street, it leaves beautiful white streaks in the snowy covered street. And the snow started coming down so much harder and the flakes got bigger. And then the lights flickered and I looked up at the street light and I remember thinking as a snowflake hit my cheek, okay, Wesley, I'm gonna be okay. And I will be your witness one way or the other. That story was actually shared as part of a show that The Soup did in partnership with First Person Arts in Philadelphia, which is a great storytelling organization, and you should check them out. They have a podcast, and they have all sorts of offerings, and the theme of the show was Witness, and we we actually made videos of everybody sharing their story, and I I just so clearly remember, like, Lori's face as she's sharing the story and the way in which at the end when she talks about the snow coming down and like feeling the snow fall on her face and the beauty of the scene outside um the death house after Wesley had been killed it was it was one of those moments that felt like so true to life and also like true to poetry and I just, I just love that story. Uh, and I also think that, you know, what that story offers is, is a, you know, is, is asks us to see something that happens in the name of, of us, but in, but hidden from us, you know, like this is the carrying out of the laws of our country, but it happens very much off stage, And so the chance to really, or the, 
the responsibility to confront that, I think is really powerful as well. Before we get to this next story, we wanna thank Mend Acupuncture, which is a new sponsor for the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. And they have been named best place to get poked. Um, they offer enjoyable and low stress acupuncture sessions. So it's community acupuncture starting at $35 a session. And they have a bunch of locations in the Baltimore area. So please give them a visit and tell them that the Stoop sent you. Okay, yeah, um, super psyched about that new sponsor as someone who's been getting acupuncture for close to 20 years now. And as you can tell, I'm like so chill. Um, totally, totally. <laughs> like, yeah. Such a huge difference in my, no, really it does. It, it does make a huge difference, which speaks volumes. It tells you how unchill I was before the acupuncture. <laughs> okay, so our next um, storyteller is a person who is doing work that is incredibly hard work, just like Lori James. Um, this is Vanessa Batista, who is a pediatric hospice nurse. She um, is a nurse practitioner as well and getting her um, doctoral degree at the Johns Hopkins Carey Business School. And she told this story at a show that is was presented in partnership with uh, the women in business at Johns Hopkins Carey School of Business. Please give a listen. Two and a half years ago, I was sitting at my desk in Philadelphia, where I work as a pediatric palliative care nurse practitioner, when the call came in. The call was from an oncology nurse practitioner. She wanted to know if our team would go and meet an 18-year-old young man named Colin. Colin's cancer had relapsed. She told me on that phone call that Colin was flat and stoic. He was depressed and anxious. He was in a lot of pain and they didn't know how to help him anymore. I reluctantly agreed to go and meet Colin, and I say reluctantly because an 18-year-old who's living with a life-threatening illness and is anxious and depressed is really a difficult thing. But I went to meet Colin that next week at his clinic appointment. I walked into the room, and Colin was exactly as described. He was laying flat on the exam table on his back, with his knees bent, staring up at the ceiling. He was wearing a ski cap on his head, and he didn't say very much. His mother chattered away, and from Colin, I got one-word answers. I prescribed some pain medication for him. He reluctantly agreed to that, and I left that first visit with Colin, feeling pretty useless. I had no idea how I would be able to help Colin, if his oncology team, who had known him for years, couldn't bond with him, how was I possibly going to be able to break through these walls and help him? But there was something about Colin that drew me in, and so I kept going back. I took care of Colin week after week, and pretty soon we got his physical pain under control. But I realized quickly that Colin was suffering from total pain. Total pain is pain that is physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual. And once total pain is recognized, total pain is very difficult to treat. It's difficult because sitting with the psychological and emotional parts of knowing that you're going to die is really hard. But I kept going back and I kept visiting with Colin and sometimes 
Colin wouldn't say a word during our visits, but he rarely asked me to go away. Sometimes we would chat about silly nonsense. Sometimes Colin would show me a magic trick. And I got to know Colin over time. He would tell me that he felt like no one was listening to him. And so I began to become his voice as I worked with the other teams caring for him. One night, I was on call, one of the many perks of my job, and the phone rang. It was around 10 p.m. I picked up the phone, and Colin's voice was the voice on the other end of it. Hi, he said. I'm glad you answered. My mother reminded me that you were on call tonight, and she told me I should call you. I'm anxious, and I can't sleep. My mind was racing. What was I going to say to Colin? How could I possibly help him? What could I tell him that would make him feel better? And I had to stop and tell myself to just be quiet and listen. And that's exactly what I did. Colin started to talk. He told me what it felt like to know that he was dying of cancer. He told me that he couldn't speak when he came for most of our visits because he physically felt like he couldn't. As their car pulled up to the hospital, he would see the buildings and get a physical pit in his stomach. Then he said, I feel like I'm on an island all by myself. A huge tidal wave is coming at me and there's nothing I can do to stop it. I feel like no one's telling me the truth. No one's giving me any answers. Then he said, thank you. I feel better now. And he hung up the phone. I will never forget that conversation with Colin. It was during that conversation that I knew that I would have to be Colin's advocate. Shortly after that conversation, we had a family meeting. Colin wasn't at that family meeting, but his mother was. I was there, and so were members of the oncology team. I still remember exactly where everyone sat in that room. It was during that meeting that I really had to become bold. I had to challenge the oncology team and to somehow figure out a way to shift gears from trying to figure out what would make Colin better to figuring out what would make Colin happy to give him a good quality of life. Colin really wanted a pet get-go, but he wasn't allowed to have one because the risk of infection was too great. It was in that meeting that I boldly said to the oncology team, it's time to get the get-go. Let him get the get-go. Everybody finally agreed, and when we told Colin after the meeting that he was allowed to get the pet get-go, it was one of the first times that I saw his face light up with a smile. Following that meeting, Colin began to get sicker. He ended up spending more time in the hospital. Eventually, he was in the ICU, and then he ended up on a ventilator and intubated. I continued to visit with Colin and his family and to take care of him and manage his pain and other symptoms. And as time wore on, I saw that the, the direction we were heading in. Things were getting worse and getting worse quickly. So one Friday afternoon, I was in the room, and I knew that it was time to be very frank and honest with Colin's mother. Colin was asleep for most of the visits at this point. And so I was talking to his mom with his permission. And it was really hard to find the words to say to her. How could I ask her what Colin would want? 
if the tube came out for some reason over the weekend, would he want it replaced? How could I tell her that the alternative was to let Colin die? I wasn't sure what to say, but I finally found the words and talked with her. She looked at me and said, I guess this is where we are now, Vanessa, isn't it? Thank you for being honest with me. We need some time to think. Colin didn't die that weekend, but he didn't get any better. I continued to visit with Colin on a daily basis at this point. And one Thursday afternoon, I stopped by his room just to check in. I told them to call me if they needed anything. And I went to my office to gather my things and go home. I was getting ready to leave, and my phone vibrated. I looked at the phone, and there was a message from his mom, and it said, come back right now. I went back down to Colin's room. I went over to his bedside. Colin couldn't speak at this point because he had a tube in, so he would write out his messages. He wrote on the screen, I am ready to stop. I looked at Colin, and I asked him with every fiber of my being if he knew what that meant. And he wrote out with a trembling hand the word death. I asked Colin repeatedly if he was ready and if he was sure this is what he really wanted. And did he have any questions? He wrote, will it hurt? I promised Colin that we would do our best to make him comfortable. His mother and I then asked him what felt like a thousand times if he was sure that he was ready and this was what he really wanted. He eventually wrote, get the meds. I had no idea that that night would be the most memorable night of my career. I was nervous, but the music was starting, and I was the conductor. I rallied all of Colin's teams that were caring for him and told them of his wishes. Everyone was sad, but everyone came together. I went into Colin's room, and I stayed in that room for hours. I didn't leave the room. I didn't go to the bathroom. I didn't eat. I don't think I even sat down. But I did my best to be present. It was really difficult to get Colin comfortable. He was wearing his favorite ski cap, the one that he had worn at all of his visits. And at one point, we finally got a little comedy relief when we played some of Colin's favorite music, and there were some really, really uh, inappropriate lyrics, <laughs> which gave us all a much-needed laugh. And eventually, Colin became comfortable. His breathing slowed. We started to turn down the vent. His mother told him that they would be okay without him. Then we both told him it was okay to let go. I leaned over and whispered in Colin's ear. I thanked him for all that he had taught me. I thanked him for allowing me to be bold as his advocate. Then I kissed Colin gently on the forehead and promised him that he would never be forgotten. Colin died at around 2 a.m. that morning, and I still didn't leave the room. I stayed there with his mother until she was ready for me to go. Two years later, I still keep in touch with Colin's mom. Just recently, she told me that their family keeps as their mantra, get the get-go. <laughs> Perhaps I should make that my mantra too. 
get the dang get-go. Because in caring for Colin and in advocating for him, I became bold. I became bold as his voice and strong as his advocate and fearless as I carried out his wishes. Thank you. Calamity, scream insanity. All oh, you ever gonna be is another great fan of me. So, yeah, this was a um, two heavy stories. We really appreciate you listening. And, and yeah, and, and just like I again with Vanessa's story, this chance, as hard as it is to be in the room where something profound happens that that is usually not in public view. I, I love that both of these stories take you there. But we promise that next week we have a lighter episode. So um, do not worry. But until then, we want to leave you with some thank yous. The Soup Podcast is also sponsored by The Wine Source which is a wonderful wine, beer, and snack supplier that is located at 3601 Elm Avenue in Hamden. And Golden West, also located on the avenue in Hamden. They're an Omni restaurant with a vegan-forward menu with lots of delicious Southwestern classics and a late-night carryout window. So visit all the folks we mentioned today. They're good people. Please visit StoopStorytelling.com to learn about our upcoming shows. We have a outdoor live show that we're cooking up and we would love for you to come if you're in the area um and you can also listen to stories from our archive there find us on facebook and instagram at soup storytelling series and thank you to maureen harvey for producing and to you all for listening we'll be back soon with more stories from the soup